Welcome to Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and today we are continuing our series on homosexuality. We will finally tackle the born that way concept and ask, what does theology and science say about homosexual orientation? I start this teaching with a review of the most important points we've made so far, so if you're not interested in this review and you just want to get straight to today's topic, then just skip ahead to the five-minute mark. This is part three of a seven-part series on homosexuality. Each part in this series deals with very different issues, ranging from theology to science to philosophy to psychology. I recommend checking out the whole series. We are in a time and culture where the church needs clarity on this issue, and my goal is to help provide that clarity. The last two weeks have been all Bible-based. It's just like, let's look at what the Scripture teaches. Because pro-gay theology right now, and, and I use Matthew Vines as the example of that, is saying not only, hey, there are gay people, hey, uh, the homosexual lifestyle is acceptable, but rather they're saying, the homosexual lifestyle is compatible with Christianity and that God would want gay people to have long-term committed relationships with same-sex partners. And that's that's what they've been preaching. So we're saying, well, you think God wants that? Let's look at the scriptures. So we've, we found that the Bible entirely and um, unanimously states that all homosexual acts, behaviors, here I'm talking about the behaviors, that they are sin. Regardless of the context, regardless of considerations like love or marriage or commitment or the lack of those things, it's just unequivocally a sin. It's against God's created design in Genesis 2, which Jesus affirms in Matthew. It's one of the chief examples of why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, according to Jude verse 7, and looking at Genesis 18 and 19 for the story it refers to. Um, It's forbidden in Leviticus 18 and 20, and in context... It's one of the reasons God judged the nations who were driven out of the land of Israel. In other words, God judges Gentiles for these, these behaviors. And so it's, um, it's not just a, an Old Testament law thing to be set aside. And we also learned that there's a really reckless treatment of the Old Testament law. Like it's all just like, just toss it. Yet Leviticus, of course, is the, is the book that is most often quoted by Jesus, who says, love your neighbor as you, as you love yourself, which is from Leviticus. And we don't just throw that out. Um, <clears throat> Also in Romans, in the New Testament, we looked at the New Testament last week, in Romans 1, 26 and 27, it's used as an example of rejecting God's created order. And it's unequivocally called a sin, whether it's women with women or men with men. It's just unequivocally called a sin. Now I'm talking about the behaviors here. I'm not speaking about orientation. In fact, we haven't really talked about orientation specifically, so we're going to do that today. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 1 Timothy 1, 10, it's included in two lists which make it something, one, that keeps someone from getting to heaven if you're practicing these things, and also um, it's, it's something to be repented of, and it's something that the law is supposed to rebuke you for, that this is, the, this is something to say, hey, you, look, this is something you have to stop if you want to follow Jesus. That's the point. And even in 1 Corinthians, it talks about how some of them were formerly homosexuals in 1 Corinthians 1, 10. Um, and so that that's pretty impressive, actually, when you think about it. Uh, for this and other reasons, we recognize that the long-held belief over three thousand years, and if if uh, if you if you really look at it, of the people of God, that homosexual behavior is clearly sinful, is clearly correct. That that is the biblical view, and that we don't have a sudden revelation of new truth to say that we've been interpreting the Bible wrong forever on this issue. That it really is just ad hoc or made up on the spot. But hopefully, because of those last two weeks, you're able to engage in a dialogue with someone who might have been tricked because maybe they don't really study the Bible and the only time they've opened it was to try and figure out if they can find a way around it. Maybe the only time they've really thought about context and studying and how to apply the law and and these sort of deep theological things, the only time they've considered it has been when they were watching a video somewhere on YouTube saying that homosexual behavior is okay and here's why. So they're not really equipped. They're easily tricked about these things. Just as, as a non-expert in any field is easily tricked by big words from someone who appears to be an expert in that field. Which is why I didn't just tell you what to think. We went through it slowly and carefully, listened to the arguments, weighed them. But there is a lot more to discuss. And today I'm actually going to move away from the biblical case about 
homosexuality. And we're going to talk about um, the issues of pro-gay slogans and tactics that are commonly used, common misconceptions and radical distortions of truth that are really normal in our culture today. And some of the phrases like born gay or gays didn't choose this and they can't change it. Um, love is love. Gay is good. These phrases we hear often. Uh, can't two people who love each other be together? Um, who are you to judge? You shouldn't be telling people what they can and can't do in their own bedroom. All these types of, of phrases that we might hear, we're going to try and start tackling those today. And I hope that this is actually probably going to be a lot easier to digest than ancient Rome. <laughs> so from here on out, it's actually going to be a lot easier as far as for the brain. Uh, but here we go. Before we get any further, I just want to deal with what is meant by the word homosexual. Because this is, it's really weird that this even itself, everything about this is a controversy, you know. What do you even mean by the phrase homosexual? Well, here's how I'm going to use it in context in general when I talk about it here. Homosexual meaning having same-sex erotic attractions. If someone says, I'm gay, what they're telling me is, I have desires for the same sex erotically. That's what they're telling me. And that, that's how I'm going to interpret that. Um, now, some people have other definitions of that. Now, there's a difference between someone who says, I have those, these attractions, but I'm not practicing and I'm not engaging in them. In which case, good for you. You're doing great. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and then if there's, I, I have these attractions and I'm engaging and practicing it. And notice the Bible doesn't actually talk a whole lot about the attractions. Mostly it just talks about the behavior itself because that's what, um, what is forbidden consistently. The attractions are mentioned in Romans as being vile or inappropriate. But that's about it. So the first slogan I want to deal with today is probably the most involved. And it will, it will have the longest answer. But I say let's tackle that while our brains are fresh. And we're ready to go. The concept of, are we born that way? Are people born gay? Um, and before I answer, is anybody born gay? I want to answer this question. What if they are? What does it matter? Does that make sense? We're just going to say, hey, let's theoretically, let's say, say yes, people are born gay. What then should our conclusion be as believers about that issue? Well, the reason why it matters is because um, this is central to almost every pro-gay theology argument at all, is God made people this way. Whereas they often disagree and even contradict about other things. You'll get two pro-gay theologians, and one of them says Romans 1 means this, and the other one has a completely contradictory view. Matthew Vines has like at least two contradictory views about Romans 1 that, that both can't be true at the same time, and it seems as though they don't care which view you come up with as long as you conclude that gay behavior is okay. But they're, they're grounded in this idea that, well, prohibitions against gay behavior was only for non-gays. And for people that are born gay, it doesn't apply. That's a really consistent mantra that comes out. They didn't know what we know now, and, or, or maybe people weren't born gay back then, and now they are. Well, what is, what is it that they mean when they say, I'm born that way, or I'm born gay? Well, let me tell you about <clears throat> some of my history. When I was a kid, um, I was, let's say, 12. <laughs> I'm always 12 in my story, so I don't know. Actually, I don't remember how old I was, but I remember this. I remember that I, did, I was not good at sports. I had skipped a grade, so I was small for my, uh, for my grade. I, I don't know if I was small for my age or not. Maybe I was, but I was small for my grade. I wasn't very good at sports. I weighed about seven pounds, and um, I got picked on a lot. I didn't really get along with other guys. My dad was estranged from me in my life. My stepdad kind of hated me, <laughs> and it was sort of obvious, and... Um, and so I, uh, I, I grew up with my sister and my mom, and my stepdad was there and then not there. They had a, a, a bad relationship. They get together, break up for a few months, get together for a week, break up for a month, get together for six months, break up for three months. It was just like that for, four, for about seven years. And um, I remember other guys just, this is just my perception, this is my personal experience. I'm not saying everybody has the same experience as me here, but other guys just, I didn't get other guys. Now, I didn't get girls either. But they were easier to get along with than guys who it seemed I had to compete with instead of just relax and, and be there, you know. And I remember at some point, um, before I was even really attracted to the opposite sex or anybody for that matter in a big way, wondering to myself, maybe I'm gay. And just, just like really wondering, maybe I'm gay. Now, what did I mean by that? 
That's exactly what this is about. What did I mean by that? What was the, what was the con conclusion of maybe I'm gay? Maybe I'm supposed to be this way. Maybe secretly I've just discovered my true identity. Now, I wasn't actually attracted to boys, so I don't know what was bringing this on, except that I had some of the typical things you see amongst a stereotypical view of a young gay kid, is that I wasn't very good at sports, and I was, and I was this and that, and da da da, and I had distance from my from from uh, males, but I was I felt closer to females and that sort of thing. Now, that actually is, in some ways, a formula that does end up producing same-sex attraction in people. I didn't end up going down that road. I'm not entirely sure why. Um, but I, but I honestly believe I very well could have. I mean, I, I really do. I look at my life and I look back and I go, I, I'm not, it's not so much that I'm embarrassed of this. I don't think it's so much an embarrassing thing. It's just a fact of reality. I think I could have gone down that path. And I can, I can remember some of the thoughts I had really young. I was like, maybe, maybe I'm gay. Maybe I am. Well, what I meant by it was this, that if I was born gay, it meant that this is who I'm supposed to be. That I can't change my, uh, my, my behavior or my person, or rather not my behavior, but who I am at the core. I'm supposed to be this way, and therefore it is good and right for me to act this way. Now, I didn't conclude that that's who I was, and I don't have same-sex attractions now. But I think I could have, personally, I think I could have easily gone a different direction with that. Maybe a different set of, slightly different set of circumstances, and I could have been in that direction myself. Um, now, maybe that's not the case for you, or maybe you find that offensive, but I'm just being honest. Um, the issue of born gay is saying I have no choice like skin color or having kidneys this is entirely predetermined before birth I'm simply born this way this is who I am it's genetically forced upon me and therefore the conclusion is since I can't I didn't choose it and I can't change it I'm supposed to be this way this is good this is who I am to be so that when people sometimes say I'm coming out what I hear them saying in the culture we're in is, I'm coming out as this is who I'm supposed to be. And now if you don't accept it or don't embrace it, you're not just rejecting a, an, an act that I'm doing. You're rejecting me. This is, I think, a radical misunderstanding. And it's based on just an assumption. But let's suppose that it's true. If it is true, then the adolescent who finds someone of the same sex uh, attractive or he has homoerotic dreams or something like that, he's supposed to think, maybe this means I'm gay and therefore I'm supposed to live this way. Um, it's an unchangeable identity issue and it's meant to create then moral status uh, and minority, excuse me, status for the person who feels same sex attraction. You're now a minority just like, in fact, we, we live in America as the land of minorities. Everyone's a minority. Right? Raise your hand if you belong in some way to a minority group. Yeah, the vast majority belong to a minority, if I'm not mistaken. This is kind of how we are in America. And I'm like, hey, man, what do you mean I don't? I'm Irish. Do you know how the Irish were treated when we came over here? You know what? This is, you don't hear about the Irish slavery, but it happened. You know what I mean? There's, there's always something that we can point to for sure. We're all part of a minority. But the idea there is that then you get minority status and you, and you want minority rights and, and minority treatment. And it just, it just kind of changes everything. So this born gay idea, it affects the theology of people and it affects their, their then receptivity to the idea that someone's gay. Uh, parents of gay children have taken great comfort when they're counseled. It's okay, your child was born this way. It's not something you did, not something they chose. They were born this way. And they go, oh, I feel so much better now. That's the typical standpoint. In the words of Howard Dean, in the words of Howard Dean, he said, if God had thought homosexuality a sin, he would not have created gay people. Now that, I mean, some of you laugh at that, but others would nod their heads and go, yeah, duh. But here's my conclusion. Let's suppose that it's true that everyone's born gay. Here's the Christian perspective. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter if they're born gay. It doesn't matter if someone is actually born with a predisposition towards a homosexual life or they're born with no same-sex attraction and I'm sorry no opposite sex attraction and only same-sex attraction it's irrelevant and please hear me out on this hypothetically if it's inborn to have same-sex erotic desires it's still wrong I mean God knew that it was inborn am I correct didn't he know this but he still said don't do it and so I could respond, you know, how I'm born doesn't, 
equal, this is what I should do. I could quote Howard Dean slightly differently, maybe adding a couple of my own words and taking some of his out. If God didn't want people to be jerks, then why did he make so many? <laughs> Excuse me, if, if it, 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 the instances of jerkism are far beyond the instances of homosexual attraction. And I'm going to suggest here that this might be a case that people are born jerks. Now, this sounds silly, and I'm not, I'm not mocking anybody here. I'm just simply trying to draw out a point. When you draw this point out to its logical conclusion, everything's permissible because whatever comes natural is therefore good. But natural doesn't equal good. People may be born selfish. I would say they probably are. <laughs> so I should be thoughtless and careless of others' needs because I was born selfish. People may be born lazy. Now, that I'm pretty sure I was. So does that mean I should lay about and have others provide for me? If I'm born a fornicator, does this mean I should have lots of sex partners? That, that I'm not designed to be monogamous, and so I should have lots of women, and this is natural. In fact, this is the atheist position of, of some individuals, Sam Harris in particular, who is one of, the, one of the atheist, modern atheist writers, famous, super popular atheist writer, who writes on morality in atheism all the time. And he says, man was not made to be monogamous. Evolution did not design this. It's not natural. It's not good. And because it, he's right, man, was, who here is designed to only be interested in one person? Yeah, it's not designed. It's self-control and it's commitment. And that's what love turns out to be right there. So people may be born uh, gluttons. But, you know, maybe what's enough for you, food-wise, isn't enough for me. So then I'm supposed to just keep eating. That's how it's, I'm supposed to be. I can be born violent, born a thief, born a liar, born a racist born polygamous, or born with bestiality genes, perhaps. It's irrelevant. It doesn't make it okay. That's the point. In theology, in Christian theology, this doesn't make for acceptance, because the Bible seems to speak to this possibility. It talks about, in Ephesians 2.3, it says, Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves, amongst the world, amongst the ungodly, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Going on to say, we, we have something we call sin, nature. Sin is quite natural to me. I'm inclined toward it. It's only through obedience and sacrifice, self-denial, that I can walk in obedience to God. This is a basic tenet of following Jesus. Take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow me. This is just a basic tenet of following Jesus. In Numbers 15.39, this... Um, Scripture says, and you shall have, this is, he makes a statement to the Jews, but then he makes an overall principle about them. You shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined. And harlotry here, he means going after false gods and, and uh, gods made in their own image and basically reinventing religion to please their carnal sinful desires, which is exactly what this sounds like. Sin nature just is a given in the scripture. <clears throat> so if someone is irrevocably born with sinful desires, we find that the cure is repentance, faith in Christ, and walking in self-denial and obedience till the day he takes you home and you don't have those desires anymore. It's temporary. And when we stand before the Lord in heaven, we stand free of the flesh. I am very grateful. In the meantime on earth, we stand with the possibility of victory over the temptation of the flesh as we die to it and we walk in the spirit. And this is, this is, I mean, that's what following Jesus is. So a theory that says, but I was born with this inclination and therefore I should do it in a Christian worldview that just doesn't hold any water at all. It doesn't, it's completely irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Now, in a, in a sort of a secular viewpoint, we, we also have to say we can't excuse behavior because it's genetic. It's possible that people are born predisposed towards murder or theft. Um, but this would, what kind of society would it create if we discovered that the mass murderer in prison has a gene that makes him a mass murderer? Would we be like, oh, well, then let him out? This obviously is not the conclusion. So what this is is it's just a deceptive ploy. It's a rhetorical device to say, hey, we're, I'm born this way, and therefore you are 
I, I should do it. But the reason why you, people fall for it is because it means, therefore, you're rejecting not my behavior, but my person. And that hurts, and you're mean, and you're a bad guy. And so um, we say we want to reject a behavior. They go, no, you have to reject me as a person. And so then, um, then this battle ensues where Christians, Christians are constantly reaffirming that we love people, but we don't, we don't endorse this sin. And sometimes uh, it falls on deaf ears. He goes, no, you're a liar, you're a bigot, you're a homophobe, and you're this and that. And sometimes these types of things come out. Although I have talked to gay people who totally understand this difference. And I sit across from them, I go, you understand I'm not rejecting you. You know, I, I meet him, give him a big hug. You know, I'm like, I'm not rejecting you. I'm saying that the Bible says your behavior is a sin, and I'm echoing that I trust the scriptures on this issue. And they go, I understand it. But society at large is not in that perspective, it seems. They just mostly vilify those who disagree. So even if somebody um, is born that way, it becomes irrelevant. Now, another slogan is, I didn't choose to be this way. I did not choose to be this way, which is slightly different than saying born this way, because they're no longer saying I was born this way. I mean, if you were born that way, you didn't choose it. But maybe environmental factors and just things in life happened that I, I did not choose to be this way. And I would say that that's actually probably pretty accurate, at least not consciously. I, I think most, probably most people who have same-sex attraction didn't consciously go, I really want same-sex attraction. Ding! And it turns on in their head. Most did not consciously do that, I'm sure. Um, but the scripture would say, you didn't choose to have these feelings. You didn't choose to have these desires. But you can choose not to act on them, just like with every other temptation. It's just in the same category as every other temptation, as something to resist and deny. I can certainly choose not to feed or fulfill those desires to turn them into fantasies, or you know, take a desire and make it a fantasy, or take a desire and fulfill it, whether it's through pornography or through uh, going out and starting relationships with people and engaging in same-sex romantic, you know, stuff. I can certainly choose not to do those things, and that's what the scripture tells us. In fact, the Bible doesn't tell you you have to stop having desires that are bad. It assumes you're going to continue having them. It tells you not to give in. It says each one is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own desires. So the, the existence of sinful desires are common amongst all Christians. And I dare say some of you in this room, at least at one time, if not still, had same-sex desires. And, can I, and I've, I've said this every week, I'll say it again. This does not make you less of a Christian. If this makes you feel like you, you're wretched and you desperately need Jesus, then I say congratulations. It's about time. Hopefully everyone else feels that way too. I'm wretched and I need Jesus. And for some just be in their sort of ivory tower and sort of feeling like they got it all together is just evidence that they've, they're spiritually clueless. <clears throat> but that being said, I don't want to concede that people are born that way because that's not what the science says. So we're going to talk a little bit about that right now. What does the science say about this particular issue of people being born that way? Um, because it's interesting, if nothing else. And um, even though I think as a Christian we can be somewhat impartial, somewhat at least, at least, at least I can, because I know this is irrelevant as far as what I need to do now. But I'm curious and so I've been looking into it, and I thought you would be too. So what does the science say? Well, many, many studies have been done about this, and a great amount of money and time has been put into proving if being gay is a genetic fact. You're simply born that way. There is no conclusive evidence to actually support that anyone, people are just simply born irreversibly and permanently gay. Yet, news articles about being born gay or about a gay gene are really common. Some Have you guys seen this before? I've seen it before. I've seen it multiple times. It's just like news articles about them overturning the theory of evolution are really common. It, it, the, and this is not so much because of just researchers, but it's a lot of it's because of the news. Uh, the news and news industry and news organizations are for-profit businesses that make money by sensationalizing the truth. They make money by... Sens it's like... All these ads you see on Facebook or whatever your, your, your social media is where it's like, what he said next blew everyone away, dot, dot, dot. And you have to click it and get 50 ads loaded before you can find out what he said next, which turns out to be very uninteresting. 
anything to get you to see the ads that are selling their business and that sort of thing. And so there's, you know, you don't, you don't make money by going, new study says gay gene is slightly possible in a small way to impact people a little bit, but not really significantly. Like nobody buys that newspaper. So it just, it doesn't typically get printed. Not to mention there is um, certain biases among certain groups where they're going to spin it one way or another way intentionally. Well, <clears throat> a couple of famous studies are really good examples of this type of thing. In the 1990s, scientific support for the born that way theory became common knowledge. Um, a landmark study by Harvard trained neurobiologist Simon LeVay was published in Science, the journal, the magazine, in 1991. LeVay noted that the hypothalamus, which is a, just a part of the brain, a small little part of the brain that's thought to regulate sexual desires, uh, was smaller in homosexuals than it was in heterosexuals, leading some people to believe that homosexuality, homosexuality had a biological base, that this smaller area in the brain was, was causing homosexuality. Two years later, Harvard geneticist Dean Hamer published his, his research in, in science, the same uh, publication. Hamer stated that there was, and I quote, statistical confidence level a statistical confidence level of more than 99% that at least one subtype of male sexual orient orientation is genetically influenced. Now, th this sort of thing, it hits, um, it hits you and you go, boy, that, that, it, there you go, it's, they're bored. But if I asked you, like, what did he actually say? Most, most common readers are like, I'm not really sure, but I know 99% was in there. This is unfortunately kind of how it's presented, and we're not really sure what's going on. LeVay and Hamer's studies received worldwide coverage. The implications were obvious. Since homosexuality had a biogenetic cause, it's immutable, unchangeable, and morally acceptable case closed. What never made the headlines was the storm of scientific criticism that followed the headlines. The results for LeVay were criticized for a lack of a significant difference between the samples of gay and straight men. There was actually, let's say that here's one hypothalamus of a gay guy and here's a straight guy's hypothalamus, that the differences were so small as to not be significant. In some cases, they were overlapping where you had straight men with a smaller hypothalamus than the gay one. And if you grabbed any one hypothalamus, you, you, you had no way of saying by the size which one this might have been. So there was sort of... Um, they polarized the explanation. They sort of made something that was a small difference look like a much larger difference. <clears throat> he responded to these criticisms by agreeing that they were valid. Here's what LeVay said later on. It's important to stress what I didn't find. I did not prove that homosexuality is genetic or find a genetic cause for being gay. I didn't show that gay men are born that way or that the most, the most common mistake people make in interpreting my work nor did I locate a gay center in the brain. There's actually several other criticisms about his work, but I think his statements can stand as far as his response to them. <coughs> it's interesting to note that a lot of these, and I think it is important to note, a lot of these uh, people who are leading these studies that come out saying, you know, yes, it's proven true that there's a gay gene as a biological cause for being uh, homosexual or having homosexual desires. A lot of them seem to be from one particular camp. LeVay himself um, got into this study. He was studying other things. He is a scientist, legit scientist. But he got into this because he was, a couple things, already convinced that being gay was biological because he, a gay man, felt that it was he was born that way. His gay lover had tragically died of AIDS. And just after that happened, he had a bout of depression and he spent two weeks in the hospital. And that's when he decided... I'm going to do this. I'm going to do a study. And so he shifted gears and he did a study about hypothalamuses of, of the brains because he heard that, that uh, uh, somebody had a, a smaller hypothalamus and they gave him the idea. So he decided to look into it. And he, he said this, and I quote, I felt if I didn't find any difference in the hypothalamuses, I would give up a scientific career altogether. This was a big deal to him. that it was, He was completely invested in finding genetic evidence for people being gay. And interestingly enough, after he did this study, he did give up a scientific, scientific career and he became a leading gay activist and educator and just a, a, a 
with just giving out gay propaganda and gay education and stuff like that. That became his career, still is, has been since then. <clears throat> so this wasn't, of course, reported in, in, a, in, the, in the big front page article. Hamer, though, the second study that I mentioned, Hamer's study, his conclusions also came under fire. Um, the number one uh, accusation initially was that he lacked a control group. And in science, a control group is, I need, uh, how many of you guys know what a control group is, right? Yeah, it's, it's I need to have, to show this is what's normal in order to show that this is abnormal. And he just, there was no control group of any kind. And this was the biggest scientific criticism. One of his co-scientists actually came out later, who actually did, worked on the project with him, came out anonymously and said um, that uh, Hamer specifically uh, did a control group experiment, but then hid the results and just threw it away because he, it didn't support his intended end. Now that's the accusation. I don't know how to prove if that's true or not, but that that was a it was it was there. Now the second thing is this with Hamer's results, they were not repeatable. Um, two other studies attempted to repeat his results. Hamer found that the X chromosome, this and that. Long story short, here's a genetic difference amongst gay people um, than there is amongst straight people. That was his point. Um, George Rice and his colleagues from Canada looked intently at the gene, it's called XQ28. Don't forget that, it's really important. Then they observed the allele and halo type sharing for these markers was not increased over expectation. And here's the part I'll point out to you. These results do not support an X-linked gene underlying male homosexuality. Rice said, it's unclear why our results are so discrepant from Hamer's original study, because our study was larger than that of Hamer. We certainly had adequate power to detect a genetic effect, as large as was reported in that study. Nonetheless, our data do not support the presence of a gene of large effect influencing sexual orientation at position XQ28. A second lab also attempted to reduplicate the results that Hamer did, and... Um, Alan Sanders, who himself is a, a, a pro-gay advocate, and he is an advocate of the born that way concept, he said that he too had been unable to verify Hamer's results. And that was a study of 54 gay brother pairs, and with the criticisms, and, um, and then <laughs> there was an investigation opened uh, by the government into his work to see if there had been, because of the reports of fraudulent um, results and stuff like that. Um, to the best of my knowledge, they never reported the results of that, of that investigation, so I don't want to pretend like I know what they were. But here's what Hamer conceded later on because of all the criticisms and the investigation that was going on. He says, the best recent study suggests that female sexual identification is more a matter of environment than heredity. He told Scientific America that homosexuality was absolutely not rooted solely in biology. They're absolutely not just born that way. Now, these, of course, are the advocates. One of the most convincing things, though, that's really interesting is research involving identical twins. Because identical twins share genes. They share 100% of the same genes. Whereas, uh, that, we're talking here about, uh, is it monozygotic twins? There you go. Yeah. yeah. I feel smart now. No. Yeah, so they have... They have they have exactly the same genes as opposed to uh, fraternal twins, which would be 50% gene share, approximately. So identical twins have identical genes. If one twin is homosexual, then you'd expect the other one is going to be as well, and it'll be 100% of the time, or at least you know very close to 100% of the time in case there's some other factor that's balancing in there. But this is not what the research has showed. Using a registry of 25,000 twins, Northwestern's Michael Bailey showed that homosexuality occurred in both twins only one in nine times. So that's a, an occurrence of 11% of the time you have both twins are homosexual. Bailey concluded that the data did not provide statistical, excuse me, did not provide statistically significant support for the importance of genetic factors for homosexuality. Not saying that there's zero genetic impact, but saying that it's not enough for it to be considered super important. The study also failed to rule out um, environmental factors because most twins share the same house. It's possible their common environment also, and common influences and common parenting and common experiences may have had some commonality there. Because 11% is, is, is statistically much higher than the chances that any one person might actually just 
be homosexual in a crowd. It's closer to like three or four percent. So, other twin studies have also been done, and here's the bottom line: none of them show a terribly high correlation between the twins being uh, gay. None of them. So none of them indicate that they're born that way. And despite the growing scientific evidence against this idea, the born gay theory persists. Why? Because it is extremely useful rhetorically. It's really, really effective in getting people to change their opinions. If I convince someone that someone's born that way, then for whatever reason, whether it's rational or not, it gets me to just feel like, then it must be good. Now, I think an appropriate response, you're born that way, is I think my heart just goes out to you. And I'm like, oh, I mean, you're, you're stuck in the struggle. You're born this with a struggle. Like, oh, what a bummer. You know, but at the same time, I recognize biblically that I'm also born with struggles. And you should kind of feel bad for me too. You know? <laughs> and this is kind of, this is why God pities us. He pities us as a father pities his children. Because he looks upon us and he's like, I know your struggles. I was tempted in all points as you are, yet without sin. And so the Lord knows our struggles, and he knows our difficulties. And, and like I said, if you feel like a wretch, it's because you've been spiritually awakened to your sin condition. And, this, and welcome to the club. Christians that are struggling with homosexual desires are not less Christian. It's life. Whatever the cause, it's irrelevant, actually. But, but it's important to note, because it's so rhetorically useful, that it's not actually true. In fact, a growing group of gay advocates are really changing their tune because the constant research. There are some groups, um, one called, I think, uh, Love One Out, which, which is like a watchdog group that says, yes, everyone's born gay. And they have tons of propaganda on their website to try to in encourage it. And I, I even listened to a bunch of their videos and read a bunch of their stuff. The thing with what they don't do is they don't actually make any case for everybody being genetically born that way who is gay. They just kind of make allusions and they show quotes from scientists that don't actually come to the conclusion they're coming to. It's really, it's, it's really kind of deceptive. There's, there's a lot of talking, but not a lot of actual evidence or conclusions um, being drawn from it. So there are other groups and gay advocates and gay publications that are now coming out, a lot of them, saying things like, hey, who cares if you're born that way or not? Gay is good and we should just be accepting and embracing it no matter what. And so, so having changed culture somewhat with the view of being born that way, they're now beginning to, I think, abandon the born that way view so that, because they're like, hey, we got our intended end of saying, hey, you're, you're embracing, you're accepting, you're endorsing, and now let's just ditch the born that way thing and just say, hey, all, all sex is fine. All types of orientations, you change, you don't change, it doesn't matter anymore. So there's kind of an abandonment of any sort of moral principles when it comes to sexuality, except for consent. That's the only moral principle that it seems like most people all agree on, is consent. Um, which is, I'm glad they agree on that. That's a good moral principle. <laughs> uh, but there should be more, I think. <clears throat> Certainly from a Christian perspective. So if we're not born that way, here's a separate question. Is it changeable? Maybe you're here in the room and you're exper you've experienced in the past or maybe presently experience same-sex attractions and you're, you're wanting to know, is it changeable? If it's not genetic, can it be changed? Is it fluid or is it fixed? Some of you might be familiar with, although I wasn't until I was studying all this stuff, but actress Cynthia Nixon from the TV show Sex in the City, she came out a little while back and she said, I understand she had recently uh, become lesbian. She was she was married to a man for years, and then she had become lesbian, and was uh, uh, I think they got married uh, technically or officially or legally, um, and to a woman. And so she comes out and says, "I understand that for many people, it's not, but for me, it's a choice, and you don't get to define my gayness for me." So she was like, "I'm gay, and it was a choice. I just chose to flip a switch, so to speak." That's how that's the impression you get from her. Websites and watchdog groups, watchdog groups like Truth Wins Out, for instance, came against her viciously. And they just attacked and assaulted her and just constant assault against her because the implication is that if she could just flip a switch or change, then anybody could. And they thought, this is horrible because they want to stop any sort of uh, therapy to help a gay person change, especially towards minors who are feeling same-sex attraction. They want to stop this. This is what the watchdog groups want. So they, they thought, you're going to hurt people. So about a week later, she came out and changed her mind. She said, while I don't often use the word, 
The technically precise term for my orientation is bisexual. I believe bisexuality is not a choice. It is a fact. What I've chosen is to be in a gay relationship, which that's true. She did choose to be in a gay relationship. But you understand that there's, I'm not saying everyone is in her shoes. I'm saying here's an example of the type of like vitriol that comes against somebody who dares to say that, that a gay person can change or a straight person can become gay or, or flip flop or vice versa. So can people change? Well, let's just theoretically say, what if you can't? What if it's impossible? And by change, remember I said homosexuality, I'm going to define it as having same-sex attractions. I think that's a fair definition for most people. Um, so let's say you can not change this fact. That whether it's, even if it's not genetics, it's something in your upbringing or it's something ingrained, but you can't change it. Then the biblical thing is to treat it like any other temptation that you can't change. That would be the biblical thing. I cannot change the fact that I am a man who has a problem with lust. And guys, neither can you. But I don't need to feed it, and I don't need to engage in it, and I, if I take it from a, a sudden desire to a fantasy or to an activity, then I have engaged in sin. Now, I, I wish that I could go into a therapy session and walk out with no more unwanted uh, opposite sex desires. That'd be nice. How many of you guys would go to that therapy? Anybody? Just me, huh? <laughs> you don't have no problems at all. <laughs> but I think that in, in Christianity, what we've done is we've, we've sort of said, like I heard a, a pastor uh, one time, he was like, you know, it really helps when you can open up to your congregation about your own personal struggles with sin. So I decided to sit down with a group of people and tell them about how I have a problem with trying to be a people pleaser. And I'm like, you're no better than the guy who responds to the question, tell me one of your flaws at a job interview with, I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> tell them about a real sin, man. Don't be your people pleaser. That's what your problem is. Yeah, you are a people pleaser. That's why you won't tell them what you really got going on. We are all of us, all of us struggling against the flesh on a daily basis. All of us. With selfishness, self-concern, disregard for others, laziness, lust, envy, hatred, bitterness. We are all of us, I think, now, I don't think we're having to lose that struggle daily, but we're all engaging in that battle on a regular basis, which is why I have to constantly walk in the Spirit so that I might not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. But those lusts of the flesh are there with me. So if it can't be changed, here's the good news, then it's just in there with a whole bunch of other types of temptations that, that Christians experience that aren't going to be changed while they're here on earth. I know there was a Christian who taught that a long time ago, back when Charles Spurgeon was around, who taught that sinless perfectionism was the, was the ultimate goal of Christians, and he had achieved it. He was no longer tempted, and he never sinned. And so the next day at breakfast, Charles Spurgeon went up to the man and grabbed a glass of milk and poured it over his head. And the man turned around and started yelling and screaming at Spurgeon, and get all, he got all infuriated. What are you doing? And he goes, oh, it's nice to know that you can still sin. And they walked away. <laughs> Anyone who thinks that they have reached a state of Christian sinlessness is only reached a state of self-deception. And they're not tricking their family, <laughs> their kids or their spouse. No, they're not tricking anybody else, just themselves. Yeah. So if it's unchangeable, the biblical thing is to treat it like any other temptation. That's it. To, and just resist it. But then the response is, but don't you think that means then that, that for gay people, they will have to live alone for the rest of their lives because that means they can't engage in a loving relationship and all this sort of thing. I think that that's a loaded question. That is a loaded question, and it's very unfair, and it's kind of a bullying, mean question. It's like in, uh, in North Korea, we get this, there's an unfair question. Let me give an example. A husband is brought down to his knees at gunpoint while another soldier holds guns at his wife and his child. And they say, you have two choices. Abandon Christ or we're going to kill your family. Deny you're a Christian or we're going to kill your family. And so then I could respond like Matthew Vines does and say, do you think it's God's will that a man watches his, his wife and son die? 
And I would obviously say, no, of course, that's not God's will. But that doesn't mean that I should automatically now abandon Christ in order to achieve that end. So is it God's will that gay people live alone and sorrowful and sad lives? This is an unfair question. It is God's will that they resist sin. And loneliness does not equal, I should therefore sin. It's an unfair, loaded question. And... Um, Staying faithful, in this case for this man in North Korea, means his ch- uh, he's going to be a widow and his child and wife are going to die. What should he do? He should follow Christ. Because that's what Jesus taught us to do. To die to ourselves. Take up our cross and follow him. And he'll see him in heaven. And we've been in heaven for, I don't know, 562,643 years. You're not going to care that you didn't get married. (laughs) You're not going to care. Our goal is not happiness on earth. It is God's will, God's kingdom on this earth. And our eternity in heaven is our goal. And it is is, is where we point and is what our hope is in as believers. Let me quote Jesus. In Matthew, um, excuse me, Mark eight thirty four, he says, When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This whole life is temporary. We're called to resist temptation to follow Jesus. And if that means I end up alone or I end up with somebody, it doesn't matter. Now, at the same time, we're not talking about complete and utter aloneness and despondency and despair. We're just talking about not getting married, which is impossible to do by a biblical definition with someone of the same sex anyways. Now, is there an option to get married? Um, Is it possible that some people can actually change Because that was the theory of if there is no change, it still doesn't change the conclusion of obey God, follow what the Lord says, follow Jesus. That's the conclusion. And that's okay. Like I said, you're not diminished as a believer. We're all sinners saved by grace and by the glorious goodness of God. But can there be change? Is it possible for a gay person to change not only their behavior, but their orientation? Um, Yes. Yes, it is. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, but let me explain. One study followed approximately 10,800 adolescents between the ages of 16 and 22. So pretty good variety. Of the 16-year-old males who had exclusively same-sex attraction, 16 years old, they're only attracted to other males. They had opposite sex attraction at 17, the age of 17, at a rate of 61%. What? Yeah, this, this is a big deal. 16-year-old males in that study who had exclusively same-sex attraction, 61% of those had opposite-sex attraction by the age of 17 a year later. For same-sex attracted females, 81% changed to opposite-sex attraction in one year. Some of you already know people who went through this. Some of you are people who went through this. The study also compared sexual attraction at ages 17 and 22 with similar results. For example, 75% of adolescent males with same-sex attraction at age 17 had opposite-sex attraction at age 22. 75%. Dr. Neil Whitehead, a research scientist who worked for the New Zealand government for nearly 24 years and and the United Nations for another four years, he analyzed the study. He notes that although a small percentage of heterosexual adolescents developed homosexuality, the vast majority transitioned in the opposite direction. Based on the data, 16 years old with the 16 year olds with SSA or same sex attraction are 25 times more likely to change toward heterosexuality at the age of 17 than those with a heterosexual orientation are likely to change towards bisexuality or homosexuality. 
Did you catch that? The, 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 not only is there a fluidity to their sexual desires, but they're vastly in the direction of heterosexuality. That means that heterosexuality is 25 times more stable than homosexuality. It also seems to suggest that heterosexuality is more of a default orientation. That's not all. Approximately 3% of the current, current heterosexual population once claimed to have either same-sex attraction or bisexual attractions. That means there are more people who have changed to exclusively heterosexual attraction than there are currently homosexuals and bisexuals combined. There are currently today more ex-gays than there are gays. They're not just saying they stopped the behavior, they're saying they don't have the desires. That's a big deal. This is a stunning report. You know, what really shocked the people was not who did the report, was not that this happened. They were not surprised because this is a well-known thing, that there's a sexual fluidity, especially at a younger age. But they looked at, you know, 16 to 22, these ages. What shocked them is that these changes happened spontaneously without therapy or, or any attempts to make them happen. They just naturally reverted to uh, heterosexuality at a really high rates. Now, as far as instances of adults changing, I mean, so we're saying here, this is, there's overwhelming evidence that there's a fluidity to human sexuality, and I think that my life is a personal test, just anecdotally, is a testimony of that as well. I, I sensed as though I could sort of choose to sow into a certain direction or not. Um, and I'm not saying everybody has that same exact scenario, but I know for me, for me it was, and so it's not unheard of or unknown. There's also instances of adults changing, though. Um, first, we should note one ancient report from about 2,000 years ago claiming this kind of change took place. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, through 11, Paul names homosexuals and then says, Such were some of you. Now, you might say, well, I don't believe the Bible. I reject it as God's word. Well, I, I don't reject it. But even if you do, I can appeal to it simply on an ancient letter of, of historical significance. That some people in ancient Rome left homosexuality in the dust. And they changed. Certainly the behavior and the lifestyle that there was a real change. And it was tied to their relationship with Jesus Christ. From a Christian standpoint, though, what do we mean by change? I think from a Christian standpoint, the goal of change when it comes to a sinful lifestyle, a sinful behavior, is simply to no longer live in the grip of this sin. To no longer live in act actively behaving out and fantasizing about this sin. Actively here, not, not uncontrollably, where someone has a dream and they had no control over that moment and they wake up and they're like bothered by it. But rather, there's an activity to it. There's a, there's a submission of the will to the sin. That's the victory. Recent studies indicate that what happened to the Corinthians can also happen today. There was an article published in uh, psycho Psychological Reports in the year 2000. It investigated 882 dissatisfied homosexuals, people who experienced same-sex attraction but didn't want it. After pursuing some form of therapy, 34 of the participants reported shifting their orientation to an exclusively or almost exclusively heterosexual orientation, speaking of their desires. There was a shift in their actually what they wanted. They experienced statistically significant reductions in homosexual thoughts and fantasies and improvements in their psychological, interpersonal, and spiritual well-being. One long-term study in 2007 by Jones and Yardhouse was recently published in the Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy. It's been hailed as one of the most rigorous studies <clears throat> ever designed to investigate the possibility of change by one of the, uh, the peer review guys. Researchers followed 98 people with unwanted same-sex attractions for over six years. 15% of the participants reported substantial reductions in homosexual attraction and subsequent conversion to heterosexual attractions and functioning. The most surprising result, though, was that subjects classified as truly gay, those who were like on the, on the, had the strongest same-sex attractions with the least opposite-sex attraction, they were the ones who had the highest um, level of homosexual attraction, fantasy, and behavior. They reported the greatest amount of change. Interesting. Clinicians and other scientists have also reported it for a really long time. So I'm going to go through a little list for you. I just want to, you don't have to memorize all this not like you could. But <laughs> back in 1882, Jean-Martin 
uh, Charcot, the father of modern neurology, described how the homosexual became heterosexual as a result of his treatments. In the 1920s, Freud reported sexual orientation change through psychoanalysis. Search, searching to try to figure out like what has happened in your life that's made you feel this way and that kind of thing. Um, researchers continue to report similar findings throughout the 20th century. I could give you a list of names. I will spare you. <laughs> um, but in the 30s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, there are, are literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of accounts of people having their orientation changed. There's one in particular that I'd like to read to you. His name is... Um, Nicholas Cummings. Actually, before I do that, let, let me just respond to this. There, there's a, um, a few principles we want to we put out, which is this. Change is not easy. Change meaning changing my actual desires is not easy. N nor would it be. I mean, this is common sense that this would not be an easy thing to adjust. We get ingrained in certain thought patterns and behaviors. And, you know, it's like, it's like, why do you like this kind of food? Well, that's what you ate growing up. I mean, there's all these different elements. And maybe there's a genetic, you know, effect there, too. Not that it hasn't been concluded that there is, but whatever the reasons are, change is difficult. Not everybody's going to change, and not everyone's going to stop having attractions. And not everybody will who does change the behavior, or even the attractions, will necessarily maintain that change. And it's the same way with any other sin. Some same-sex attracted people really do get lasting change, though. And for those who have unwanted same-sex attraction, there really is hope. Yet there's propaganda going out from supposed advocacy groups for gay people that is harmful to gay people because it tells them that there's, there's, you're born that way, you're stuck that way, there is no change. Just give in and embrace this lifestyle, which is harmful and sinful. And uh, we'll get into the harm next week uh, when I talk about the secular case against uh, homosexuality because there's a really thorough, strong one against it. We're going to deal with some statistics and medical reports and things like depression and alcohol abuse and, and STDs and things like that that are very important to note because they're, they're so statistically prevalent in uh, those who are involved in same-sex behaviors. But aren't reparative or conversion therapies harmful? How many of you guys have heard this claim? That it's, it's harmful. It's, it destroys lives to try to change people's orientation or change their behaviors. Um, well, some of them can be. But have, have you noticed that the examples you hear of bad, like, reparative or conversion therapy are examples of just bad therapy in general? Like, shock therapy. Like, we will electrocute you. We're going to zap you. Like, to me, it's, it's like, I don't have to be, a, a, like, a clinician to know that this is a bad idea. Like, I've been shocked a few times in my life working in different jobs. Like, it did not improve my life in any way. <laughs> I'm just saying, this is not, this is obviously bad. So what'll happen is you'll have people that, that literally call themselves survivors, survivors of conversion therapy. They go, I'm a survivor and I have my testimony, my story to share. And they'll talk about how they had these really weird experiences and you're like, ooh, I understand why you're coming against that kind of therapy. Like, that is horrible therapy practices. But what they don't, they don't ever give examples of is, is normal, healthy therapy practices that are probably more often practiced. Um, so they, instead they talk about shock therapy or talk about just browbeating them to make them feel so ashamed that they won't do it again. Like that totally works, right? Um, or even things like where the, 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 the therapist is watching pornography with the patient and talking to them about what they're seeing and stuff like this. And I'm like, like from a Christian worldview, it's like, in no way is this a good idea, you know, and, and just sort of in a rational perspective. It's like, what? <laughs> so these are bad examples of therapy, but is it possible for some homosexuals to experience substantial and enduring change and that therapy can help with this? Good therapy? Yes, it's absolutely possible. But even in California, we have, it's, it's illegal. Um, a, a therapist, if a 17-year-old goes to a therapist, the therapist now, because of current laws, has to say, I'm sorry, I can't help you with this. No, but I don't want to have these feelings. Doc, help me out. No, you don't understand. There's a law passed. I'm not allowed to, I'm not allowed to help you out of this. You're, you're born that way. You're stuck that way. And it's unchangeable. And the proof is I'm not allowed to try. And um, 
That's unfortunate. That hurts people. So let me uh, read to you a quote from a guy named Nicholas Cummings. He was the former president of the American Psychological Association, and they're the ones championing that this stuff needs reparative therapy and stuff has to stop. But he used to be the leader there, and he is a total proponent for, he's a gay advocate. That's what he does. Um, he said he says this, when I was chief psychologist for Kaiser Permanente from 1959 to 1979, San Francisco's gay and lesbian population burgeoned. I personally saw more than 2,000 patients with same-sex attraction, and my staff saw thousands more. We worked hard to develop approaches to meeting the needs of these patients. With clinical experience, my staff and I learned to assess the probability of change in those who wished to become heterosexual. So we're all, you're not trying to force anything. You're just helping people who want to change. That's the idea. Um, of the patients I oversaw who sought to change their orientation, hundreds were successful. Since then, the role of psychotherapy in sexual orientation change efforts has been politicized. Gay and lesbian rights activists appear to be convincing the public that homosexuality is one identical inherited characteristic. To my dismay, some in the organized mental health community seem to agree, including the American Psychological Association, the APA. Though I don't believe that view is supported by scientific evidence. Gays and lesbians have the right to be affirmed in their homosexuality. That's why, as a member of the APA Council of Representatives in 1975, I sponsored the resolution by which the APA stated that homosexuality is not a mental disorder. And in 1976, the resolution which passed the council unanimously that gays and lesbians should not be discriminated against in the workplace. But, contending that all same-sex attraction is immutable is a distortion of reality. Attempting to characterize all sexual reorientation therapy as unethical violates patient choice and gives an outside party a veto over patients' goals for their own treatment. A political agenda shouldn't prevent gays and lesbians who desire to change from making their own decisions. Whatever the situation, at an individual clinic, accusing professionals from across the country who provide treatment for fully informed persons seeking to change their sexual orientation of perpetrating a fraud serves only to stigmatize the professional and shame the patient. There can be change. There can be change. And there's, there's testimonies and stories about change, but there's strong, and not from every gay person, I'm not, I'm not talking about gay people here, I'm talking about certain gay advocacy groups that are like watchdogs and they're very strong and, and sometimes they seem to play fast and loose. And hey, some Christian groups play fast and loose with the truth too. But they come out there and, they, and they're trying to perpetrate the idea that all like reparative or, or conversion therapy or whatever they want to call it, that all sort of attempts to help someone to overcome at least some degree of the same-sex attraction they're experiencing is evil and bad. And um, that's, that's hurt, hurtful to the people. It's wrong. So when it comes down to it, um, the real arguments, because we look at it you know, scientifically, there, there can be change. We look at biblically, there should be a resistance and there's, there's no reason to do it. The real arguments are actually emotional words and distorted, a distorted view of the situation. We're only given two options. Either you force gay people to live loveless and alone against the love of God and all your own Christian values. Tell them they're mistakes of creation and they're worth less than you are. Tell them that they can't get married or have a family or love because you have misread your Bible. That's option one. That, that's how it's presented now. Or two, accept them and love them by approving of their same-sex sexual behaviors. Those are the only options. But those aren't our only options. I'm not forcing anyone to live alone and loveless forever. In fact, I'm not forcing anyone to do anything. Gay sexual acts are a sin, not an inclination. This takes the love issue out of it. We're talking about the behavior, not the feeling. People can choose to do what they want. That takes the force out of it. So I'm not forcing anything about love. I'm, am I keeping people from having a family? I'm sorry, but genetics is keeping two same-sex people from having a family. There, literally every human on the earth is a result of heterosexual couplings. There's no such, there, you can't, Matthew Vine said old, repeatedly, you, you want to keep gay people from having a family. And I'm like, no, it's just physically impossible, which is one of the problems with same-sex relationships. That every one of them can't produce a child. And you can't say, well, but what about some uh, opposite-sex couples who can't have a kid? Does that like devalue their relationship? No, I mean, that's, that's just not 
we're talking about design here, not not uh, an accident in one particular situation. We're not going to make rules based on exceptions to rules. It's true that somebody who's in prison doesn't belong there, but we shouldn't therefore let everyone out of prison so that we can make sure to get that guy back out. It's just it's it just doesn't follow. I'm really given two options, but they're not the two options <laughs> that they give us. Ignore the clear teaching of the Bible and promote sin so that I won't be ridiculed and marginalized in society or hold to the scriptures and try to represent them in a loving but truthful way. These are my two options that I see, and I know which one I'm going to pick. Thanks for thinking biblically with me today. I'm Pastor Mike Winger. Would you like my notes from this series? Go to BibleThinker.org, find this message, and there will be a link to download the notes for free. Next time, we will have a shorter episode dealing with how mainstream media uses psychology to manipulate public opinion on the topic of homosexuality. And let me say this, I am not a conspiracy theorist. This is just the facts about how they openly used three well-known advertising techniques to manipulate public opinion. They sold it like cereal, so that people would accept homosexuality and vilify anyone who is against it. Yeah.